All right, guys, this has been one of the most requested episode topics to date. So I'm so proud to be able to bring you Angie Ashy. Now, Angie is a board-certified sports dietitian and a certified exercise physiologist and the owner and founder of Elite Sports Nutrition. Since founding her private practice, she's worked with hundreds of collegiate and professional athletes across the country. Her company has become widely known across social media for providing evidence-based nutrition that's also easy to digest, which is so critical in today's day and age. Her specific expertise and her recipes have been featured in numerous publications. It's one thing we're really proud of on this show, guys. We try to bring people that are really out there, skin in the game, people that aren't uh, you know, sitting basking in some glory of, oh, I've made it. She puts her work out there for men's fitness, muscle and fitness, NBC News, and she goes all in. We're talking about a lot of different things today, guys. Myths, rumors, even my past history and her experience dealing with people with eating disorders. There's something for everybody. So if you're not in the performance space, don't tune out. You likely know somebody who has disordered eating or has gone on some keto diet or has watched some documentary that you know the next day they want to tell you all about it and they know the facts because they listen to somebody with a lab coat. Angie's going to debunk those things. And she's going to talk about what you actually should be taking uh, to heart, what you should be practicing daily. She's an excellent communicator. You're going to love this. Speaking of communication, thankfully, we are now reopening our apprenticeship communication workshops. These are pan-domain for anybody who leads, manages, wants to communicate more effectively. They are non-death by PowerPoint workshops. They're highly focused on you getting evaluated as a communicator. So we do various forms of improv. We do video breakdowns. It is the first workshop of its kind to use scientifically validated assessments for seven components of communication that we all use every day. So I don't care what field you're in, you likely go somewhere to work on different skills, get certifications, get licensures. But do you do any of that for communication? If not, you need to get to one of our apprenticeship workshops. And we're doing this on July 25th and 26th in Charleston, South Carolina. Guys, there's a lot worse places this could be. And if you're listening internationally, yes, we do it all over the globe. And we're now open for business again. These are small workshops. So we're abiding by all the pandemic guidelines. We don't allow more than 10 to 15. You're spaced out. We are going to find a way to procure face masks if that's something you're concerned with. But we keep these small. These are small, intimate gatherings that go in depth. These are not mega conferences. Haven't you had enough of that anyway, just sitting and listening to somebody speak? Let's get interactive. Let's get social again. Those things are critical because as Angie knows, your information goes nowhere if you can't engage others. And that starts with great communication. To learn more, go to artofcoaching.com backslash apprenticeship. Enough of me. Let's get on with Angie. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Art of Coaching podcast. I am joined today by Angie Ashy. Angie, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Brett? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me, guys. Angie, as you can tell by the intro to the episode, and we've gone into her background, and we've got everything linked at the bottom, so make sure, like every episode, you check these things out. She is a registered dietitian, sports nutritionist, and personal trainer. She has a wide range of experience, and it's actually a small world. Because Angie is friends with my wife, Liz, and that's how I was introduced to her work. And she has a great platform on social media and beyond about just good, no-nonsense sports nutrition. So it was a no-brainer to get you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. That means a lot. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, likewise. And you guys, one of the things Angie and I were talking about early, and if you've listened to the show for a while, you know this, we do everything unscripted. That means nobody receives questions ahead of time. And we do that because we want this to be conversational. I always think as a host, it would be very odd for me to ask Angie questions, especially questions people like you guys are interested in. 
me not really listen to the answer and me just go down this direct line of questioning. But over today's episode, Angie is going to talk to us a good bit about the difference, the distinction between a dietitian and nutritionist. We're going to talk about how to really be uh, engaged without obsessive about food and just how we can properly fuel ourselves during a time when misinformation runs rampant. So Angie, let's start with some of the obvious. What really is the difference for people that aren't in our community between a dietitian and nutritionist? What's the distinction of that nomenclature? Sure. So a dietitian is one that's, they still have that ability to promote health and nutritional education, but they have quite a few more educational degrees required. A bachelor's degree, first and foremost, is required usually in dietetics. Uh, in my case, I also had a, a bachelor's in exercise science. And then they do have to complete a, a bunch of required coursework, you know, anatomy, physiology, medical nutrition therapy. There's a wide range there that they have to cover. And then they have to undergo a dietetic internship. So that's really the big defining um, factor here is that they have to complete over 1,200 hours, primarily in a clinical setting or not so much always inpatient. They may also be outpatient setting, whether that's uh, diabetes patients or you know working with other autoimmune diseases, gastrointestinal diseases. It's, it's a lot more clinical um, than I think most people realize not being in it. Uh, and then, of course, they have to pass a board exam to hold the title of a registered dietitian. And majority of states, they do require you to be a licensed dietitian in order to practice nutrition um, in their state. There are a small handful in California, Colorado. They don't have restrictions. So in the case of, say, a nutritionist, uh, they are able to provide uh, general nutrition guidance. And then in the case of a board certified sports dietitian, uh, that's something where you can actually gain additional hours, say two, I think it's 2000 hours in a specific field of, in this case, sports nutrition. Uh, so working with athletes to become board certified uh, in sports dietetics. So a lot, a lot of experience, a lot of coursework um, required. I know they're also changing uh, the dietitian, the registered dietitian to require a master's degree before you can actually sit for the board exam um, to become an RD. And then in the case of a nutritionist, honestly, there's real no real licensure required and there's no exam. There's so many different online certifications that you can kind of just like take in a weekend or take at your own pace that can quote unquote call you a, I'm doing air quotes over my microphone right yeah. now, <laughs> a nutritionist. Uh, so it, and it can be, it can be challenging, especially with social media, um, because a lot of people, they can't really distinguish the difference. And so they don't know exactly the credentials that this person has and how reliable the information is. And it can be really dangerous, especially what I've seen most common is more so in the autoimmune, um, people helping with like hormone health and things like that, which is very much medical nutrition therapy. Um, however, it's, it's often, you know, the holistic health coaches or nutritionists that are providing this education based solely on kind of just what they learned in one, one course, uh, instead of anything clinical. Exactly. Instead of getting that experience. And you may also have an instance where a nutritionist has never actually sit in with a client either, which is really scary. Um, cause they've just pretty much, it's, it's kind of like just reading a bunch of coursework and then, just accepting clients. Um, so it's, they don't really have that experience working one-on-one -on -one like, like you do it with a dietitian. Yeah. And I appreciate you going into that because I think here's the thing I didn't want to do on this podcast. Typically podcasts will, will dive into your background, which we take care of in the intro. We dive into you a little bit. And then it's the very end where we answer the obvious question. So many people want of, well, where can I find a true dietitian, somebody that has a, a, li a license, somebody that is reputable. And I wanted to just get that stuff out there first. So those of you listening understand, guys, the potential dangers and pitfalls of it, you just listening to blanket nutrition advice. I mean, we have a wide range, Angie, of listeners, everybody from lawyers and teachers and strength coaches and dietitians. And I think everybody can appreciate at some level that in their own field, they have some charlatans, some quacks, some things like that, that might have very successful platforms, mm -hmm. but they're just continuing to machine gun spray metaphorically 
bad and generic advice that can potentially harm somebody, especially like you said, if somebody's dealing with autoimmune issues or some kind of medical related and they don't have any experience in that side of things. Does that, how much does that really frustrate you? Cause you've got to see it every day. A lot. It's, it's, you know, you hear the like whole N equals one. That's very much a lot of nutritionists that I see on social media. It's like, well, Hey, you know, I cut out X, Y, and Z, and now I don't have any autoimmune issues. And so that must mean that it's great for everyone. Like it's, it's really scary. And, and it's hard. I mean, I understand at least just from what I've kind of seen with nutritionists, a lot of them become certified nutritionists or health coaches because they're passionate. But we both know, I mean, just because you're passionate about something that doesn't make you an expert at right. it. And it doesn't, it doesn't give you that um, ability to, to also you know, educate others on it just because it's, it's a passion of yours. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm glad you said that. I mean, passion can be really illusory. There are a lot of things that many of us are passionate about and it doesn't mean we're necessarily skilled at it. Now, can passion lead to skill development? Of course, right? You have to have mm -hmm. that innate interest, but it can also blind you to the realities of, well, some of your blind spots, right? It can lead you to overwhelming bias and things like that, which reminds me, I mean, I know you might not like to think of yourself this way because you're humble, but if we're being honest, you have an empire, I mean, you've been, your, your expertise in recipes, you know, everything from men's fitness, Fox News, Runner's World, Shape, Self, all these things. And for somebody that has this clinical background, how hard has it been or what were the challenges early on from you taking uh, this, this knowledge that is research-based and then turning it into a platform that is also interesting and engaging to the general public, right? Because you've got to make this information yeah easier for somebody to understand as a knowledge broker. How did you navigate that? I mean, I'll be honest, Brett, it took years of trial and error. I, I wish I would have had a little bit more guidance in the beginning to see what, what was going to work best. But a lot of it was honestly just my experience working with clients. What do they want to hear? What do they want to learn more about? What are their interests? What are they, what are, you know, what's important to them? And, um, I think the biggest thing for me was creating content that was non-biased. So obviously, you know, you'll, you'll have clients that come to your office and say, Hey, you know, my teammate is trying out keto. Like, I think I want to do it. And, and I, I know there's dietitians out there that are like, no, don't do it because X, Y, Z. Well, you've really just hindered your, your relationship with that client because now you've kind of either made them felt stupid for asking you, um, or just made your, yourself kind of just look pretty much, you know, pretentious, like, you know, everything. And so I think just really presenting it in a very non-biased approach has, has been so important for my career and, and building my clientele because I feel like clients can trust me to give the most accurate advice and kind of show both sides and say, well, listen, you know, if, if this is truly interesting to you, or if this is something you're, uh, you're, you're really passionate about trying, let me just, you know, kind of walk you through and educate you on, on the basics, the pros, the cons, and then you can make a decision from there. I think, I think that's really helped me get, get to where I am today with my practice. Uh, it makes sense. And it, it, I think it pays, it, it really touches on, I, I think it was in November of 2019, you had a post and I'm not going to remember it word for word, but I really liked it. And it was when I was really getting onto your work more specifically, you talked about the detriments of this one size fits all approach to nutrition. Uh, and there yeah. was one piece in particular, I remember, cause I, I loved how you said it. Cause when I look at recipes, I always kind of just look at these things and I'm like, oh my gosh, where you had said something telling people that they can only have a fourth of an avocado or yeah. that they can only have this and that everything comes down to this small little minutia. It's this fine line between being engaged and mindful of what we're eating and the advice we're following without being obsessed, is it not? Totally. Yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to think back. I think it might be the post I was talking about with how individualized sports nutrition can be and how yep. it's it's definitely not one size fits all. Um, but a lot of times players or coaches or nutritionists or whoever else, they might try to fit them into this one generalized uh, recommendation. And I think that's, it's, it's exactly what you said. It can be kind of bringing them into like an unhealthy relationship overall, or just, um, you know, cause restriction or things like that, because they're, they're trying to fit into something that's not really necessarily fit for them. Yeah. Well, and this is where I saw linearity between us is 
I, I hate general coaching advice or leadership advice, such as just be empathetic, look someone in the eye, shake their <laughs> hand. Like communication's more complex than that in the same way that you had another one, nutrition miss. It's not just about eight cups of water a day or, hey, eat yeah. your egg whites or, hey, guess what? Coconut water now is is the go-to thing. People need to understand complexity, but within a relatively simple and relatable framework. Could you give me an example of something outside of that domain for yourself. Let's, let's take nutrition and all that out of it. When you were, when you're learning something and it could have been, uh, intense mathematics, it could have been woodworking. I'm just making things up. When was a time where you tried learning something that for the longest time you just were confused, but then eventually somebody stated something in a way, maybe that was either verbally or through a video or an infographic that really helped it click for you. Uh, what kind of learner are you or what was a situation like that where that happened for you? Oh, gosh. You know, I the first thing that popped into my head, I don't know why this is, but uh, was anatomy. Anatomy and physiology. I know it's kind of a little bit nutrition, but no, not okay. completely. It was it was a hard topic for me in, in undergrad. And uh, my dad, he's a sports medicine doctor. And so he was fantastic at giving me like real life examples and kind of just bringing it more like a... I guess, uh, easier for me to visualize that was like, Oh yeah, like that makes sense. And especially when you're learning about like origin and insertion and all of those things function, it's, it's a lot of stuff to memorize. And so he kind of had these fun ways for me to, to remember certain, um, certain aspects of anatomy. I'm not not sure if that completely answers your question, but that's just kind of the first thing. So I guess I'd be more of a visual learner and, Uh, applying to real life situations, I think I'd say. No, I think that's helpful. The reason I ask that is, again, as somebody that has knowledge in a unique domain, and I know, again, there's people listening that have varied backgrounds in their knowledge of uh, just nutrition and fueling their body properly, but I think everybody can relate to the fact that when we can create strategy as simple rules and we can give autonomy within structure, that it helps empower us. You know, and so just giving an eye, but so often we struggle with that because we have the curse of knowledge. We think because something makes sense to us that it makes sense to other people. And that because, so have you found through analyzing or assessing yourself, I don't know, maybe even asking your husband or other loved ones for feedback or even clients, what have you really discerned are your key skills that make you a great communicator or teacher when it comes to uh, elevating somebody's understanding of complex subjects? Oh gosh. I mean, <laughs> I, have you ever read the five love languages sure. before? Yeah. yeah. So I'm very much a words of affirmation person. So with my clients, I, I think one thing that, that has helped with working with them is I'm very much positive reinforcement all the way, catching my clients doing something right uh, to kind of help motivate them and build confidence. Um, so I guess you could say kind of that side of things, you know, um, encouraging them through through compliments, um, or ways to, to find, to motivate them again, versus that positive reinforcement. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I always go back to an example of somebody I worked with that did that really well. Uh, I was working with an athlete that he ate, he loved barbecue, but he needed to Mm -hmm. lose some weight. And she easily could have gone down the route of saying, cut this out, do this, do that. Right. Gotten really extreme. And, you know, she had just suggested, Hey, can you just eat it one, one, uh, one last time during the week, just one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did that and she had a really good way of encouraging him without infantilizing him without being like, good job. Right. Like she had a way of just finding a way to, to convey this sense of progress, or as you said, words of affirmation without patronizing. And that's one other thing I was going to ask you. Raw, raw leadership admittedly really bugs me. It does. So where, yeah. do, where do we draw the line for people that like to give words of affirmation? Because I'm the same way. I appreciate that deeply. Where do we find draw the line between being encouraging without uh-huh. being cheesy and patronizing, even if we don't mean to be? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to be a cheerleader 24 seven for them. I think there's a way to, one thing that I like to do is like with my clients, obviously I don't like to be told all the time, like you're doing this wrong or or told what to do. So instead I feel like there's a way to encourage them just by saying like working together with them. Hey, how, how can you do this? Or do you want to do this kind of wording it in that way instead of, 
um, you know, constantly cheering them on over every little thing that they do. Um, also kind of working to like, Hey, here's, here's some ideas that I have. Like, what are your thoughts on them? Maybe it's for better eating habits. Maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's, um, you know, related to the training program, whatever it might be, just kind of encouraging like, Hey, maybe we could try to work on this. Um, rather than just always applauding every single little tiny thing that they, they might be doing right. Yeah, it sounds like you're a master. So in one of my courses, we talk about different influence tactics that have been kind of peer-reviewed in the literature, and two of them that you hit on perfectly there, here's your words of affirmation, are mm-hmm. a collaboration and consultation tactic. One of those is offer like advice-seeking. So you're inviting somebody else to say, hey, what, could, what do you think we could do here? What are some other options, right? You're giving power. You're giving ground to gain ground. And right. then the other one is kind of the opposite of that. Now you're offering help. And that's a lot of what helping people determine the right meal plan is, right? Like if they're looking at that side of things is giving them guidelines, say, now what are options, you know, whether you're talking about vegetables, whether you're talking about just meal timing, anything like that, because you have to adapt to a wide range of lifestyles. Like you said, it can't be one size fits all. You have to see what they can. And then you have to take that information and then you have to offer advice on how they do that. So it is this dance instead of a directive, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And it, it just goes to show how important it is to understand your client and understand their personality. And and another thing I look at is, of course, their dietary history. So, you know, it helps to build that relationship and trust and first getting to know, uh, you know, what are their past experiences, maybe with different diets? Have they tried eliminating entire food groups before? Have they tried things like cleanses or fasts or where have they gotten their nutrition advice from in the past? Has it been other dietitians? Has it been trainers or strength coaches? Or has it been nutritionists? Or maybe it's even just been players on their team, teammates. Um, So kind of just learning about their past history with nutrition and and also their knowledge, their their skill set. Are they even going to have the capability to to make these changes? And and then how how is the best way to motivate them? Maybe they maybe they're not a big fan of words of affirmation. And sometimes I do have a client that's very much like, hey, just just tell me what to do. I'm sure you've probably had clients like that before where they're like, you know, just just tell me exactly what to do. And then I have others that they may be resistant to make those changes. And you might have to, you know, take those baby steps of doing like one tiny change, super, super tiny change at a time. So it just it depends on the person and and a lot of their their personality and and their past with with nutrition. Yeah, without a doubt. And you're right. I mean, the thing to remember is none of us are ever just one love language or there's never one influence tactic. So even though I appreciate words of affirmation, say if my book made a difference or somebody found mm-hmm. something I did helpful at the same time, when I box competitively, I didn't want somebody to give me, I, I was just like, cut the shit. Tell me what I need to do. Right? Like, <laughs> right, well, right. like I can tell people the number one thing that does not work on me is the sandwich technique, right? That whole idea of give me a compliment, then tell me what I need to do better then put another compliment there. No, no, no. Like I see that coming a mile away. Just cut it and give me the brass tacks. Um, So other than you, because I'm a big believer in that, how we communicate is, is a lot to do with our own self-awareness. And you seem pretty self-aware given how skilled you are as a communicator, other than words of affirmation, when you're looking at yourself, what are some other ways that if we wanted to influence Angie Ashy, what are some other things you (laughs) respond to? Well, Oh gosh, this is hard. Yeah, you know, is, there's I, no softball questions on this podcast. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I could I could very much give you all these examples of clients, but when you ask me about myself, it is a little bit harder. I guess that's the whole the purpose behind your conscious coaching too is, exactly. is to look at yourself. Uh, it's okay gosh. to take a, it's okay to take a moment too. Listeners of this podcast are well accustomed to the fact that I encourage guests to just take a second and deliver an answer. You don't need to be super fast with it. Just take a moment. Yeah. And and repeat the question again. Yeah. So the answer was, you know, or the question, sorry, the question was, we're all influenced by a multitude of things. We're never just in one bucket, right? So Mm -hmm. aside from words of affirmation, if I want to influence Angie Ashy in some other way or connect with her in another way, what's another strategy or tactic that can be effective with you either responding, learning more effectively, or just being committed and and being bought on board with something if I want to change your mind? Hmm. Not sure. Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in obviously research and science and evidence-based literature. So I think maybe saying like, Hey, have you heard about this and this and this and kind of presenting more, um, rational persuasion? Guess, 
Exactly. Yes. Rational. Yes. That would be a good way to describe it. Absolutely. I think that'll like really get my interest. Like, oh, wow, there's, um, you know, there's actually like data and statistics on this. Like, that's really interesting. And it could be something completely not even related to nutrition, but I, I find it, I still find it fascinating. Sure. No. And I asked that simply because it's funny and it's a, it's a point for the audience to consider. And I know I like to reflect on this too, and hopefully it's a value to you. You know, we forget that most people that are analytical learners or, or have rational persuasion as a big piece of what they respond to, well, we tend to take to these fields, health, medical, so on and so forth. But the majority of our clients or athletes are not, right? They can be mm-hmm. more global or metaphorical. And so it's, it's when you look at the perceptual gap or the communication gap that often exists between those that want to help and those we're trying to serve there is that part where we like in, we like statistics, we like this. And oftentimes they're like, yo, just <laughs> give, give, exactly. <laughs> give it, give it to me straight there. Um, so no, I appreciate you rolling with the punches on that. Cause it's not an easy question. Um, one other thing you touched on, and I think that this is why you don't, you don't realize it, but you're doing supremely well at this. And this is why it's not scripted <laughs> is you talked a lot about past experiences, right? Now, mm-hmm. anybody that's listened or read my book, knows that I had a past experience with what was really called anorexia NOS, not otherwise specified. Um, I basically dealt with some levels of depression in high school when my friends were uh, experimenting with drugs and my parents were going through a divorce. I became obsessed with training. It was my way to deal with anxiety, which by the way, I also love that post of yours that said, I wish my metabolism worked as fast as my anxiety. (laughs) So that's how training, retreating into training was how I dealt with fear, anger, aggression, because it made me feel, Angie, like I was doing something positive for myself. The issue is, and anybody that's dealt with depression knows this, at that point in my life at 15, like I didn't realize that it was becoming a drug. I was becoming so, and I wasn't trying to lose weight. I didn't think, it just was an outlet for anxiety. But all of a sudden I started fixating on food and it wasn't just enough to train hard men's health and muscle and fitness and all these things said one would say eat low carb. Another one would say eat low fat. So I've joked about it before. Here I am at 15 lifting weights three times a day running, basically exercising like Christian Bale and American psycho while fueling myself on egg beaters, turkey, bacon, fat-free craft singles, fat-free, no sugar added yogurt, all these things, because that's what the magazine said you needed to do. We still kind of live in that society. We live in this society where people are told that clean eating is meal prep and perfect ingredients and everything's got to be locally sourced and everything's got to be organic. Where can people just stop, breathe, and what should they know about how to be more mindful without going down this dark rabbit hole of becoming obsessed? Yeah. Well, and gosh, I relate to so much of that, especially when you talk about like the egg beaters and the 0% fat, everything. I, I grew up, my mom, bless her heart. She's amazing in every way. Thankfully she's no longer a yo-yo dieter, but (laughs) she was on and off diets my entire childhood. And so it was mainly Weight Watchers, which at the time was pretty much like low calories equals low points. So anything with fat in it was kind of off limits. And so even, you know, from high school into college, I remember thinking liquid egg whites, powdered peanut butter, skim milk, the Weight Watcher blueberry muffins, all that stuff was was healthier. And so going through that, I know firsthand like how long it took me to really actually change that mindset that life will continue if you, you know, don't count out your almonds every day. Um, and so <laughs> it's it's hard to break those regimented dietary rules and to rid yourself of that of that guilt that comes from eating food choices that aren't universally said to be clean, which that clean eating, it's, it's all over social media. I think back when we were young, we had magazines and you had shape and, and men's fitness and all that stuff. Well, social media has basically taken those magazines and like multiplied it by like a, a billion. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. And uh, what you've kind of described to me is, is something that I see often with athletes, that obsession with healthy eating or quote unquote healthy, I'm doing air quotes again, it it is called, it has a name as orthorexia. So it's that extreme fixation on the purity of their foods. And there's a really fine line between orthorexia and healthy eating. And 
studies kind of point to athletes, especially as being at that higher risk level, because I mean, think of it, their, their career is their health. And so if anything, they're, they're even more focused and hyper tuned into what they're eating and what they're putting in their bodies. And so that's why I, in my practice, I do, I do deal with orthorexia quite a bit. And, um, I try to work with them because of course it's, it's when that healthy eating becomes an obsession to the point that it's actually negatively affecting their mental health or, performance or relationships, social life, that's when it becomes that orthorexia. And so like as health professionals, as other athletes kind of watching out for, for your teammates and things, there's, there's certain things to kind of look out for to help decipher between the two. Uh, and I think again, it's just getting to know that athlete and, and learning about their past experiences. If I have someone come to me and they're like, oh yeah, I've tried keto, I've tried Whole30, I've tried Atkins, I've tried you know this and this and this. I'm going to kind of expect that they have or suspect that they have a higher risk of developing something like orthorexia if they don't already have it. And especially something towards like carbohydrates all being bad because all those diets that I just mentioned, you know, they eliminate, eliminate grains or fruit or things like that. So it's, I know that it's going to take some time to build that relationship and build that trust to introduce something like carbs uh, back into their diet. And so um, it doesn't really matter if they've told it from, if they've been told this from like, um, social media or from, uh, another health professional or maybe a teammate, it doesn't matter where they got the information. It's just my job and another health professional's job to really help, uh, I guess, clear up the confusion about, about all these mixed messages that we're getting the high fat, the low fat, the high carb, the low carb, all of that stuff. So we're going to stop real quick. As you guys can tell, there's a lot of information coming at you quickly. Don't forget, we've made this easy for you. We offer free podcast reflection sheets. These are notes pages. These are reflections pages. Think of it as daily stoic meets art of coaching. You get them for free, guys. And it's to make sure that you actually use this information, can remember it, all those things. Just go to artofcoaching.com backslash podcast reflections. Artofcoaching.com backslash podcast reflections. There's no trick here. You just enter your email and you're going to be sent to the archive where you can download notes pages and reflections pages for any episode that you want. That's it. Share it. Tell other people about it. Make sure you put the information to use. That's ultimately what separates people like Angie from the rest of the population, right? She doesn't just learn. She doesn't just you know, go in and, and try to invest in her education. She puts it to use and puts it out there. You got to do the same. All right, back to Angie. Yeah, no, that's super helpful for you to be able to identify those things. And you're right. It's funny. It goes back to what you and I started talking about a little bit at the beginning, Angie, is what starts off as somebody wanting to do better for themselves, right? Just uh, better health status, pay a little bit more attention to what they eat. Then they think it all of a sudden becomes this passion. But mm-hmm. again, it goes back to, we talked on episode 16 about the passion paradox of harmonious passion versus obsession passion. And this, on that episode, we were talking about how that relates to CEOs and leaders, but in this it's, it's food, right? And the distinction was, do you control the activity or does the activity control you? And Mm -hmm. that's where I remember. And I'm glad you brought up the the point about your mother, bless her heart as well, being a (laughs) yo-yo dieter and, and having weight watchers. Well, my mom, you know, had those things also. And then my grandmother died of a massive heart attack. Uh, another member of my family died of a heart attack. Cancer is rampant in our family. And so I was pretty health conscious. And so these magazines reinforced a fear or anxiety that was already there. And then my control mechanism of that, well, I, I played two sports. I loved working out already. So then it just becomes this insidious monster, you know, and, and you're doing, I remember all the crazy stuff I used to do. I mean, I'd go into GNC and get cayenne, you know, pills, cause that would speed up your metabolism. And yeah. then men's health would tell you that uh, green tea extract and the ECGC would, could burn more calorie. And then you're like, so I'm thinking of all these ways that I can use ethical performance enhancers that like are all natural like that, or even just like creatine. But then I wasn't even fueling myself correctly. So I could have taken whey protein and creatine and done this. And that's why I tell people like, Hey, if you're an athlete, the three best supplements I'm using air quotes now are (laughs) sleep, water, and good fueling. But like good is just so ambiguous now in the minds of people because of how it's been, how it's been twisted. So is there any hope? I mean, given the 
amount that we're up against with Netflix documentaries and just people out there with huge platforms that aren't using them responsibly, is there any hope to us really being able to break through with just good information or what, what's going to change the tide in our favor? No, I think there is. And I think it's, uh, unfortunately, it, it definitely does have to be part on the athlete or the, the client's um, job to make sure that they're getting their information from reliable sources. And that can be really hard to know for sure. And I think number one, if you have questions, maybe, you know, look at their credentials, see, you know, do they have that RD after their name and, and kind of look at their, look at their background, you know, do they actually work with athletes? Um, Cause that's a big indicator too. And kind of what's their experience, or maybe if you even just trust one health professional, uh, whether it's a strength coach, uh, or your trainer, you know, ask them, Hey, who, who do you look up to for, for nutrition advice? And, um, hopefully, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, one way that you can get in, your leg into meeting with a dietitian or meeting with, um, someone that can kind of work, walk through those, those steps to get you into a healthier relationship with food overall. Because I think, I mean, when a client is mentally preoccupied with their dietary food choices, a lot of the social media posts can just lead them down an even deeper and darker path. And and the biggest thing is guilt is what it is. It's it, which I think the guilt that comes from eating those foods can really have a bigger effect psychologically than, than physically, especially like eating a couple extra pieces of Easter candy. Like that's not going to, you know, ruin all the body composition changes you've just been making the last six months. But for some people that read, you know, depending on what you read or who you follow, they might not know that they might think, well, gosh, but it's, but it's sugar, but it's carbs, but it's this or that. And, um, and so, and if someone's been believing that for a long time, then again, it goes back to that really like non-judgmental one-on-one sessions that I have where I make sure that I don't say like, no, you're wrong. Sugar's not that bad. Like I, I try to really work with them to restructure their behaviors and restructure their, their thought process behind these, these foods and why they eat them or why they don't eat them. Um, it's really interesting. I sometimes like just for an example, I'll, look at a, a food log because I think food logs are an incredibly useful source, but I think they're often not used in the right way. I think a lot of health professionals, they'll look at food logs mainly to see just the nutrients, right? The calories, the carbs, the fat, the protein. But for me, I like to look at it and see what kind of story it tells me and see, you know, I wonder why they chose this. I wonder what was going on in their mind or I wonder what was going on in their day. I wonder what they were dealing with that made them come to this conclusion to, to eat this option. So I may even ask them like, Hey, I, I noticed you had, you know, six egg whites for breakfast. What, what made you decide on that to have for breakfast? And then that might start a conversation of them fearing eggs for their entire life. Like you just never know where that will really bring you. And that's where food logs are such an important piece in, in the conversation process with, um, with my athletes. Yeah. You touched on a couple of good points there that I don't want to, uh, escape. For, I want to make sure it doesn't escape from the audience. I love that you said at some point, And this was referring to where I said, is there any hope for us being able to break through the noise? You said at some point, the onus is on the athlete or the individual, right? And that is true. I mean, a lot of times people will scream and shout and say, oh, you know, you should do this. You should do that. And it's like, here's the truth. Most people know a lot of things they should do and they don't do it. We know we should brush our teeth. People don't always do it. We know we should go outside and and move more. We don't always do it. So I think people mistake, like, even if we were able to provide the best information in the best way, whatever that subjective and objective best is, it's still on them to utilize it. And at some point, like we we've taken accountability out of our culture of people having to make like literally fact check themselves. Like, great. uh, You want to sit there and belabor a Netflix documentary or something else. Well, you know what? Like go and do your own research. You know, Mm -hmm. don't sit here and say that all these other things out there like play a role. Like I knew for me at the end of the day, when I was hospitalized, eventually all I could blame was myself at a certain point, you know, because I knew that certain things weren't working. My body didn't feel good, but I was still blind to it. I just felt like maybe I, I, you know, I needed to train harder. I needed to do this. Now, now part of that was me being 14, 15, not having any kind of subject matter knowledge on that and being, you know, depressed. You're not in exactly a motivated state to go find research articles. And it certainly wasn't as available as it was today. But I remember you know, going into the hospital. And one thing they told us about was just basic basal metabolic rate. And I remember this like blew my mind at 15 because magazines and books and all this stuff told me 
well, hey, you got to burn more calories than you eat. You know, that basic, mm-hmm. that basic blanket statement. So I'm sitting here thinking, all right, if I want a six pack, I need to, I need to figure this out. So I had a food, lo- a food log. I had one of those, uh, like those little books that told you how much, like how many calories were in something at IHOP and Village Inn and right. all these other places. And I'm like, sweet, I'm burning more calories than I eat. Well, then, you know, a dietitian tells me, hey, idiot, you know that, and she didn't call me idiot. She was basically like, you know that your body, and this was based on my calculations at this point in time, right? Like you need X amount of calories just if you were to lay in a coma today just to keep your internal organs and your skin and everything healthy, you would need X amount of calories, right? And it was, Mm -hmm. let's call it 1,500 to 1,800 based on my height and weight at the time or what have you. And I'm like, what? So then I looked at this guy who was part of the kind of eating disorder, you know, rehabilitation program. And every day he would sit and he was, he was one of the guides there. He would smoke through this gigantic ice cream Snickers candy bar, just crush it. And I can't remember his name. I think it was Greg. And I'm like, Greg, level with me. How do you eat one of those things every damn day? And the dude was still in phenomenal shape. We just see him tear it up. And he's like, listen, dude. This is one small part of my caloric budget a day. He's like, you know that basal metabolic rate you learned about? This 600 calorie candy bar with all these, you know, all this sugar and all that, like that is one part of a budget. And I remember hearing that and I, you know, I'm sure they were oversimplifying it at some point in time. But when I tell people now, like, yo, you're worried about a donut or this or that within the grand scheme of things, it's never that one thing. Or like you mentioned, the Easter candy, Like the things, again, aside from somebody having major metabolic syndrome or something else, right? It's a habitual overeating problem over time or lack of activity or just abuse of these high calorie things. It's never that one thing. Just like if you go buy a nice pair of shoes or a watch or you and your husband go out for a nice dinner, that doesn't immediately bankrupt you. It's doing a ton of those things over time. Am I, are we talking about this the right way? Can you go into that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, and I, I feel like the, the thing that you saw from that magazine, I feel like I see that still on social media and people will like, you know, see one post and be like, Oh, okay. And like, think that they understand it, but it's so much more complex than that. And so that's kind of the, the point of meeting with a health professional to, to get that, you know, real in-depth guidance and meeting with a dietitian, I think is our role, especially one of the most impactful thing you can do is emphasize that healthy meal patterns rather than eliminating bad, you know, quote unquote, bad foods or hitting specific macro numbers that will help your athletes eat more mindfully with less guilt and anxiety towards food. It's truly one of the best, most impactful things you can do. I think is just those, those healthy eating patterns rather than the restrictions, the obsessions. And you mentioned Netflix documentary. And I just, I have to mention this because a few months ago, or gosh, I guess it was in the fall. It was like clockwork. Every day I'd get a text from one of my athletes that was like, Hey, Angie, I want to, I want to ask you about something. I, I really think that I should go vegan. I think it's going to take my performance to the next level. And so then I'd be obviously in the back of my head, I'm like, all right, he, he watched the game changers documentary, but I'm like, all right, like, let's, you know, let, let's talk about this. Let's talk through, through it. Let's. And so then we would meet and of course it'd be like, yeah, I watched this documentary called game changers. And so I'd, I'd have to really educate them, you know, listen, this is, this is definitely one-sided. It's not saying that, you know, to improve your performance, you have to eliminate meat. Like it's not like, oh, they just cut out meat. So, you know, it has nothing to do with their sleep or their stressing management or their strength training or what they do 99% of the time. It it must just come from cutting out meat. So (laughs) I do have to kind of, you know, educate them on, listen, a lot of that probably comes from, and and what we have, this is actually research-based, is it the benefits come from eating more plants, not necessarily completely eliminating meat. And a lot of that goes to an increased carbohydrates because a lot of plant foods are rich in carbs. So when athletes see improvements in performance, it's mainly because they've increased their, you know, micronutrients from, from plant sources. They've increased their carbohydrates from things like grains and beans. And so instead of saying like, Hey, let's go all in all or nothing vegan, I'm going to be more realistic with them and say, well, I know that fish is one of your favorite foods. Like, do you really want to stop eating salmon? Do you think that's going to improve your performance? And and they'll say, well, well, no, I mean, if I don't have to, and, and I know, of course they don't have to. Um, so it's things like that where we, it's just providing education on a, a very one-sided view that they see a clip of and they think, oh, this is going to be 
Because of course, athletes, what do they want to do? They want to improve body composition. They want to improve performance. They want to play for a long time at the highest level. And so when you have a documentary telling you that doing this one thing is going to do it, of course, they're all on board, right? But it's it's taking the time to really walk through and educate them on on okay, let's, let's actually look at the facts here and, and walk through the pros and cons. And then afterwards, if you want to go vegan, that's fine. It's, it's my job as a professional to make sure that they have all the facts and that they do it in a very safe and effective way. Um, because at the end of the day, if they want to eat meat, if they don't want to eat meat, that's their choice. Right. Well, and how ironic, right? You mentioned how, uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that they're increasing their carbs. Well, it's, there's not a lot of irony there that that kind of a diet it became really popular and titular right after the keto diet, right? Remember a few years ago or just a couple of years ago, it was all about the keto diet. So popular. And then people didn't realize like half of these diets wouldn't even allow for 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. So it's like, all right, can I even eat a large apple? You know, what about a cup full of peas? What about, you know, what have you? And so, yeah, like you said, they're going to feel better because so many of these people transition. We talked about yo-yo dieters. They went from the keto diet being invoked to now the plant-based diet. So they think it's the plants, but it's really the the fuel source that the plants provide. We looked at it the same way in the training industry. It was no, it was no surprise that after the whole functional prehab um, kind of way of training came in, that boom, CrossFit got big. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking about people that do CrossFit really responsibly. There's great CrossFit coaches out there. I'm talking about the extremists who are putting uh, pictures of people throwing up after tough wads. And it's like people go from spectral extremes. So let's go from keto, no carbs, to you know a plant-based diet where I feel really good. Well, guess what? Now you're getting carbs. It's mm-hmm. no different than going from really conservative training to really aggressive training. It just kind of shows the microcosm of culture of saying spectral extremes exist, does it not? Oh, absolutely. And again, it's that whole what what works for one person may not work for another. You mentioned extremes. I feel like after the whole game changers thing and and veganism became more popular in plant-based diets, it's now people are doing carnivore diet. Now there's books coming out on people, you know, curing their autoimmune disease with only eating meat. It's just like complete opposite side of the spectrum, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, we, we, listen, we lived in LA and in LA, it was like (laughs) LA, it was, um, you would see people that would just ask for the most ridiculous things. And the irony is you live in the most smog filled city ever, but it's like, they couldn't have somebody used to try to sell us oxygenated water. I'm like, you do know, you do know water has oxygen (laughs) molecules in it. Uh, and they're like, well, this oxygenated water. And then it was flavored. And it's just, it never stops. It's almost kind of fun just to think as a creative exercise, what do you think, Angie, it's going to be, and it's okay to be wrong here, right? Like we're, we're giving mm-hmm. you permission to be wrong. What is it two to three years from now? Where, where, what's the next thing? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's always something regarding protein or I mean, carbs or fat. It's yeah. never really anything regarding protein. So maybe there's some crazy people that are like, going to come out with some anti-protein diet or something. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely going to be something. It's interesting. And so, but this is a lot of what leads to those eating disorders and what have, because it is disordered eating. Some people think that just because they're not binging or purging or restricting food or whatever, that they don't have an eating disorder. But the way I understand it, this mass obsession with food and elimination and all this can technically, depending on how far it gets taken, be classified as an eating disorder. Can it not? Oh, absolutely. And orthorexia, it's it, there are definite medical concerns that come from, I mean, malnutrition. Think of digestive issues that come from a lack of fiber. If maybe the person fears carbohydrates or, or well, quote unquote, like they, they think that carbohydrates are not healthy um, or the hormonal imbalances that could potentially come from a really, really low fat diet. If maybe they think fat isn't healthy uh, and then poor recovery from exercise or impaired bone health, or I think of like increased risk of bone fractures. If they're mm-hmm. not, if they're in that low energy availability, um, that restrictive eating where they, they, again, they think that they're eating really healthy, but they've put so many limits and restrictions on what they can eat that is healthy, uh, that they're in a huge deficit and, and it's causing that low energy availability, which, which we know, and it's now referred to as red S it used to be the, the female athlete triad. Yeah. Uh, we know the risks that come from that, especially regarding bone health and amenorrhea and female athletes, um, and things like that. Not to mention the psychological issues that of course come from, from that unnecessary guilt that comes from eating those foods. 
Right. Yeah. No, and I, I remember I felt guilt and shame for a long time of being a guy with a beard from the Midwest that it was hard for me to admit that, you know, basically my depression at the time of a teenager manifested as an eating. Guys aren't supposed to have eating disorders, you know, but it was like, listen, I wanted to be in top shape. Um, well, later on, that's what it became. You know, early on, it was just, uh, it was, like I said, it was an outlet. But then you start diving into these rabbit holes and then you start realizing, oh, my God, like this is this is an issue. Now, you mentioned, by the way. You, you gave us the answer. On, uh, you didn't know it, but that's what it's going to be two to three years from now, the anti-fiber diet. They're going to be like, oh, oh an, now guess anti-fiber. what? Anti-fiber. Oh, okay. They're, they're yeah. going to say fiber doesn't actually help the way we thought. We actually, you know, it's better for the food. Just like wine gets better over time. We want the food to just stay in our small intestine and not get excreted. It's going to be better. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be some shit. I mean, like, oh, pun intended. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm already I'm already getting anxiety having to walk through that educational session. <laughs> No doubt. So what, and I'm totally okay with this being unscripted. You can say you don't want to talk about this and I do mean it. All right. I do mean it. Uh But given all this, right. And when I put out my book, I did have an influx of people and I'm thankful if you guys are listening that you did this. I did have people, male, female reaching out and saying, Hey, either I struggle with an eating disorder or my nephew does, or I have a client that does, How do I broach this topic? How do I speak to them? I mean, I used to get on the phone. uh, The first year my book came out, I think I got on the phone with four or five people that were in inpatient eating disorder hospitals, which meant a great deal to me because I didn't, I didn't have anybody to talk to during that point in my life. Like I was fighting with my parents, you know, my brother felt some kind of way about it and none of my quote unquote friends in school ever came to visit me. I mean, I was, you would have thought I had, uh, I had some kind of virus and I'm not being indelicate given the context of the times, but no, it was like, people didn't want to touch me. So I had to figure out how to navigate this. And then I have, I have a cousin now who she is type one diabetic and she's around a crowd of girls who everything is very superficial. Um, every, you know, she's just in that teenage phase where it's all about looks and what have you. And so she manipulates her insulin pump and to, to, to manipulate weight. And even me, this is a case where like, even though I've gone through it and I've written a book about it, the expert's always out of town. She's never going to listen to me. Right. Just like some people whose athletes may not listen to them. My point is, and what I'm trying to say in a long winded fashion is how do we broach these topics with somebody that we think may be struggling with some kind of eating disorder or food related issue or body dysmorphia, whether it's an athlete, somebody from corporate America, or your neighbor? How do we broach that? Yeah. You know, I'll be honest. It's it's really hard for family members to try to like come in there and and give their advice. If anything, it could be even more triggering, uh, especially in the case of something like orthorexia where they, they, I mean, most eating disorders, they don't, they don't think they're doing anything wrong, right? right? They think they're, they're in the right. And so I think first and foremost, they need to be directed to a professional. So as a family member, if maybe say you're, your cousin or your your own daughter or someone is if you're concerned about them having an eating disorder first and foremost their doctor have them um, be seen by their doctor and and potentially if if they need to be in either outpatient or inpatient um, it's it's going to be really good for them to to be with the right professionals they're going to be directed to an eating disorder dietitian so definitely someone that that's their absolute specialty they're they're very good at it. Um, one of my really close friends, she, she worked in an inpatient, uh, eating disorder treatment center for several years. And I don't know how she did it because man, that is an emotionally draining, draining job. I did one internship rotation there and, and it's challenging for sure, but she, she's fantastic. And then, um, of course a psychiatrist, I think obviously meeting with someone to, to talk about the, the concerns that's not related to you or not your neighbor, that's going to be really important as well. And I know there's, there's helplines and the national eating disorder association, there's a helpline that you can call if, if you want to, you know, if maybe you're concerned yourself that, you know, shoot, maybe, maybe I do have a, um, something that needs to be, you know, looked, looked more, looked more in depth and, and see if, if, if maybe I need to make some, some changes here, or get some help. No, it's good advice. I think, well, what's scary for me sometimes is, you know, I remember when I first went, they had me see a psychiatrist because, again, 14, 15-year-old kid, I was angry, you know, confused. I mean, my entire social circle at that point was now doing meth or smoking weed or doing other right. – like, like what I, – I was pissed. The mm-hmm. issue was is, as with any profession, there's good and bad 
help out there. You know, the number one way that this professional thought he could solve, quote unquote, my problem was more medication. So I remember at like 15 being prescribed Zoloft and this and that. And it was just like, you know, the guy wouldn't even talk to me about what was going on. I don't think once he asked me, hey, what it was, what's the symptoms? What's the issue? Boom, here's the prescription. Right. So inevitably Mm -hmm. I rebelled. I'm like, I'm not taking it. Like you didn't even talk to me, dude. You know, and then if I would get animated, it would be like, oh, this is the this is the illness talking like they wouldn't even connect as a person. And then yeah. same thing when we did outpatient or inpatient treatment, you know, uh, what, what I got told, what I probably heard more than anything is I remember one day, what, what was the meal? It was something like a tuna salad sandwich and French fries and a milkshake or whatever. And that, that was like the meal for the day in the outpatient hospital. And they said, this is what normal people eat. Oh and, my gosh. and I mean, I, what I documented in my book was the case. I mean, you would hear, uh, when we were in the inpatient hospital, if you, you had to choose between like cereal or a bagel for breakfast, right? So if I had cereal, they would give you two sugar packets and well, I've never, I've never <laughs> put sugar on my cereal ever. Yeah. And if you didn't, we were penalized because we were told that's what normal people do. So mm-hmm. one day I refused to put, I'm like, I'm not, dude, I'm not putting sugar in my cereal. Like I'd never do that. And I was forced to drink a boost replacement in front of everybody else there. Like it was some kind of like act, you know, like I was some kind of, and so here I'm at 15 or 14, you know, 14 or 15, like having to do this stuff. And I'm like, these are normal, quote unquote, normal eating behaviors. No wonder the world's screwed. And so (laughs) it's just a fine line, right? Cause you're right. We, people need help in their treatment centers, but it's just, it's also this case of good help is always hard to find, isn't it? Yeah, no. And I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, it's hard because I've even seen my fair share of registered dietitians that I don't trust, you know, in my own experience of working different places and my, my dietetic internship, working with other dietitians, I'm like, man, I would never refer my clients to them. So it's, it's even, even in my own field, I I see dietitians that I'm like, man, I just, there it's, it's hard to find really good um, professionals that you can trust. And I think maybe if, if maybe you trust, uh, like just to give you an example, I mean, I've obviously worked with several athletes that, that have disordered eating, especially figure skating. So in my situation, you know, once I've worked with one, then the parent may ask, you know, Hey, well, well, who did she work with? And then, um, so that could be an instance of maybe if you're a parent and if you know of someone who's gone through it, and if maybe they've had a really good experience, then that could be one, situation where then they can, that could be a good referral. Or maybe if, if you really trust your, your coach or your strength coach to give you some referrals, um, or your doctor, if you have a really good relationship with your doctor that, that you feel like they would lead you in the right direction, then, you know, I guess, and, and the thing is too, I mean, I've had some athletes come to me where I'm their fourth or fifth dietitian. Um, so it may be that they do have to kind of go to, to different dietitians until they find one that's a really good fit. Uh, my goal is always that I'm the last one that they meet with, of course, but, um, you know, I, I feel like there's, there's definitely going to be some instances where, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a little bit hard to find someone that, that works with you the, the way that that's best for, for you and, and, and for your progress. Yep. I appreciate that. And Guys, for what it's worth, you know, I'm, I'm putting this on record right now where it comes to finding good help and recommendations. I am putting my full recommendation behind Angie and what they do at Elite Nutrition. So whether you are looking for guidance, uh, and I don't care if you're international, domestic, if it's on sports nutrition, weight management, just family nutrition, wellness, anything like that. I really want to encourage them, Angie, to go to EliteNutrition.com and check out what you do because the way that you've navigated uh, the non-scripted material here, this was a little bit interview, a little bit (laughs) test. Uh, You pass with flying colors and you're just incredible with everything that, not that I'm the vetting aficionado, but you know what I mean? The point is just like (laughs) we try to have people on this podcast that don't give one size fits all advice, that really care, that really want to not skirt around tough questions and I mean, from everything my wife has said about you and everything that you are one of the few that what you see on social media matches the person and the professional. So I just can't thank you enough. And I hope that I hope that means something to you. But I really recommend that everybody checks out what you do. Well, Brett, that means more than you know. And you're fantastic at words of affirmation. Let me tell you what that <laughs> no, it really it does mean. It does mean a ton coming from you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm honored to have been on your podcast today. 
No, it's my pleasure. So aside from EliteNutrition.com, and again, guys, we'll, it's in the show notes because it is spelled and I'll have Angie spell it. Um, but where else can people go to support you and your work? Yeah, so I'm mainly on Instagram, uh, and my handle is the same as my company, which is E-L-E-A-T, Nutrition, so a little play on words there. Clever. Uh, you, you can also find me um, occasionally, very rarely on Facebook, and also occasionally, very rarely on Twitter. Uh, that's that's where I, I spend most of my time is, is Instagram. I love it. Well, guys, listen... All of you have somebody that you know faces issues with these topics. This is something that is universal. And this is why we talk about these kinds of things on Art of Coaching is you know somebody that could utilize this information regardless of what end of the spectrum they're on. If they're just trying to begin their journey in better eating, if they're somebody that struggled with food-related issues, anything like that. So we would deeply appreciate you sharing this episode with at least three to five people you know. You'd be surprised at what a difference that can make and support Angie Ashy and her work. And Angie, once again, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest and a good sport. Thank you, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Until next time, this is the Art of Coaching Podcast. Take care. Take care.